Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. And glad you could join us for this special edition of On DoD. And we're going to talk this week about some of the advances the Navy is thinking through on how it might be able to better connect the fleet. And there are, of course, a lot of aspects about how the Navy operates and does business today that are based on the assumption, or really the reality, that connectivity in the afloat world is just a lot more limited than, than what most of us are used to nowadays. But some of that might start to change fairly soon, largely because of innovations coming out of the commercial sector. Technologies like 5G and proliferated low-Earth orbit satellites, things that already exist today, talk through how the Navy's thinking about adopting those innovations and what they could mean to the fleet. We're very glad to have with us Rob Wolborski. He is the expert on all this. He's the Chief Engineer at Naval Information Warfare Systems Command, or NAVWAR, and he at the team at NAVWAR also served as the Technical Authority for Cybersecurity, IT, and IW issues for the entire Navy. Also with us is Ron Wolf, the Technical Warrant Holder for Navy Mobility. Thanks, uh, thanks very much to both of you for joining us for this. I really, really, really appreciate you taking the time and Rob, let me, I think, start with you. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about all these issues is I got a chance to hear you talk in fairly excited terms, I think justifiably, <laughs> about these issues in a, at a conference a few months ago. And I'll, I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but but generally what you said is that, that what's happening in this space is a transformation that's bigger than everything the Navy's ever done when it comes to afloat connectivity. Can, give us a little bit of color on on why you think this, this is, we're, you know, we're at a potentially revolutionary inflection point in terms of what can be done here and what's the art of the possible. Yeah, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be able to provide this message for the Navy too. Um, I'm going to turn the clock back to 1991. And I think I brought this up during my speech at West. And that's, I'm an old school SATCOM engineer. And I was the guy that put the first wideband SATCOM system on a Navy ship. And the reason we did it was because during the Gulf War, we couldn't get the air tasking orders to the carriers to, you know, on the daily fight um, during the Gulf War. So they used to have to fly a plane like the paperboy to every one of the carriers and drop off a 400 page document on each carrier so that they could follow the, the order of battle on a daily basis. So the lesson learned was, is we need to be able to do this digitally. So we integrated an old army SHF SATCOM shelter with a shipboard SHF antenna, and we put it on the USS Abe Lincoln, and the ship sailed out. And this was a major transformation for the time, doubled all the bandwidth that everything else on the ship could provide at a whopping 32 kilobits in 1991. And we delivered the air tasking order without having to have an aircraft physically land and drop a stack of paper on the ship every day. It was a major transformation. So then now I'm in the position, fast forward 30, three, 32 years later, and we're looking at what's happening with 5G and PLEO. And it's the same level of transformation, but much more profound and a much greater exponential curve. These things, this the capability that is in orbit today is up to multiple orders of magnitude more bandwidth that we can deliver to the fleet and the warfighter um, today. And it is a catalyst for a significant amount of activity and transformation. Um, a lot of it is, is related to the quality of service and not just the warfighting end of what we do with our bandwidth, but everything has been moved to the cloud. Everything's done in a networked way. 
And when the ships would sail out to sea, um, a lot of the business and things that sailors needed to go do um, were significantly limited and it, it impacted them in their ability to conduct their own training, um, logistics, personal matters, banking matters, even connectivity back to home. Um, all these things were basically virtually turned off when we were out at sea. And understand that there are times where we're not going to be able to communicate most of the time in benign environments during normal fleet operations. This is just a catalyst for what I would consider to be a transformation of um, dramatic proportions for the Navy. I want to come back to P. Leo, but let's talk a little bit about 5G here, because some of that is a little bit um, unintuitive for the reason that there are not a lot of 5G cell towers in the middle of, of oceans. What's the specific 5G use case that, that you all see, especially in that afloat environment? Well, there's some things. Communications between ships can be done via 5G. Um, communication to airborne assets can be done using 5G in the afloat domain, but also operating in littorals and other things. Um, it, it, the, the goal for us is to provide the fleet and the warfighters with the maximum amount of options and alternatives and paths as we possibly can to be able to transmit and receive um, critical data, operational data, quality of service information to the fleet and the warfighter. Out in the blue water domain, internal to the ship, there's some leverage and uses for 5G. And then there's future capabilities that haven't been fully developed yet in 5G that may also lend itself to some more finding applications. But I will turn this over to my master of mobility, Mr. Ron Wolf, to add any color commentary to my comment. Ron, please. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so as you can imagine, currently today, latency can be an issue with regards to communication from one vessel to another and from ship to shore and that kind of stuff. So when it comes to blue water comms out over the ocean, uh, 5G system has the ability to deliver data faster to and from two, two nodes or two, two, let's say two planes. You can deliver data faster between the two, two systems, um, bigger packets, more data. And essentially the ultimate benefit is that Intel can be collected quicker it can be delivered faster um, and it really mitigating that that uh, latency issues that we have over the ocean. Right. And we have those on land as well, terrestrial. But um, the biggest benefit for the research we're doing is to mitigate latency and future capabilities will be added because of that. So there's there's technology we've wanted to add to our systems for several decades that we couldn't really do because latency became an issue, the, the size of the data actually slowed the system down. Um, and 5G lets us mitigate that so we can actually use sensors and stuff like that. I could go on forever, but I don't want to do that to Rob, so. Um, yeah, hey, and Jared, I'll add that as the ships in port or going into port, 5G is multiple orders of magnitude more throughput than what they get today, typically through peer side physical umbilical connections and the physical connections are fragile and break and cost a lot of money and you have to have a team of people to be able to connect these things if you can come into port and seamlessly connect to the shore infrastructure with significantly more bandwidth and throughput it's another 
benefit to the platforms. And we're doing quite a bit of experimentation and work right now on the ships as a peer surrogate to do 5G and other things. So, and it's it's actually demonstrating significant benefit to the fleet. Without getting too far into the technical weeds and, and obviously without getting to, into classified territory, can you can you all give us some sense of how far along you are in those research and experimentation efforts? R- really what I'm trying to get at is how far away do you see it um, w- where this is actually real and operational in the fleet, 5G or PLEO? Well, yeah, today we have PLEO in the fleet today. And we've developed kind of a open architecture system called Sting that's out of PMW 170 here in PEOC4I. And right now it's used to connect um, Starlink, but as new providers, and there are a significant number of new PLEO providers that are emerging onto the scene, we will have the ability to use and leverage multiple different PLEO products, capabilities, and constellations simultaneously in the shipboard domain. So the first stage um, of staying in PLEO connectivity is being delivered to the fleet today. And we're moving as fast as we physically can to make this happen for the fleet. And it's ahead of, you know, things like the POM and the requirements process, the DOD 5000. We're not necessarily, we're operating within the confines of that, but we're also moving faster and um, more aggressively coordinating with the fleet and sharing the cost in advance of all of this becoming some big program of record. I'm providing the engineering discipline and rigor to make sure that it's being delivered properly. It's being properly secured, properly dealt. We're, we're assessing the EMI and all the things that you need to do to get this on the ships as fast as we can. And um, I think we're at the, the very, very beginning. As we stated, it's by 2030, they expect over 50,000 satellites in orbit. Today, there are thousands of satellites in orbit providing an extremely robust and valuable capability for quality of service. So we're moving as fast as we can. With respect to 5G, a lot of the work in 5G is um, more focused on the base side, although we do have some capability that we're testing on ships today. We've done a lot of uh, warehousing, modern warehouse things with 5G, and we're doing peer surrogates with 5G now under the OSD Pathfinder efforts. And those things are gonna be as soon as we're done with the Pathfinders, they'll immediately be in service. But they're service, serving the fleet today. I don't know if you have anything, any quick answers for this one to add, Ron. Yeah, we are. We're researching everything from tactical to enterprise systems, but we're also leveraging commercial rollout related stuff. Um, and the reason why is because we can actually accomplish a lot of research without touching any of our systems. So um, and we, we have commercial rollouts underway in multiple uh, locations. Can't really tell you where those are, but um, but we are uh, working as fast as possible to roll stuff out. We're rolling out small pieces of 5G in different locations and, and you know scrutinizing it heavily before we move towards deployment of, you know, more sophisticated systems. I want to go quickly back to, to one of the points Rob was making earlier about, you know, that this, this being really especially relevant in phase zero type operations when you're not so worried about EW type things. Is there any research underway to, to figure out how you might be able to incorporate things like 5G and, and PLEO in an environment where you're worried about emissions and where you're worried about not being detected? Or is that 
just basically an impossibility? I believe that um, we are aggressively looking at any and all options to maintain these communications links without exposing our location to potential adversaries um, as aggressively as we possibly can. So as of right now, we're making, we're, we're learning a lot. We're at the beginning phases, but I expect a lot more energy and work put into that moving into the future. Um, understand that I have a major role in overmatch and a lot of what we do on that is to figure out how to maintain connections as we fight our way through certain things. And that effort is setting, is blazing the path with respect to moving fast and setting a precedent on how we're going to be agile and perform our engineering and deliver our capabilities and redefine our processes to where things add value, make sense, and allow us to maintain that speed with the right level of technical rigor. So, I mean, at a minimum, you're, if you have a, if you're, you have a global capability and you can receive without any problem at all. Mm. So that at a minimum that that capability will probably lend itself to more austere environments. And we're looking at any and all options to provide the, the ability to transmit information in those situations too. All right. Definitely want to talk more about that process piece, but right now we have to take a short break. We will come back and talk more in just a few minutes with Rob Waworski, Chief Engineer at Naval Information Warfare Systems Command, and Ron Wolf, the Technic Warrant Holder for Navy Mobility. Back in just a minute on On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is a special edition of On DoD brought to you by T-Mobile. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is a special edition of On DoD, and we're talking with Rob Wolborski, the Chief Engineer at Naval Information Warfare Systems Command, and Ron Wolf, the Technical Warrant Holder for Navy Mobility. And Rob, I want to come back to something that you just very briefly mentioned toward the end of the last segment, which is which is Project Overmatch. And, and just for our listeners who may not be familiar, that's sort of the Navy's contribution to DoD's broader JADC2 effort. How do all these efforts uh, bringing in more modern, more commercial, uh, more advanced communications uh, commu- uh, capabilities feed into to Project Overmatch? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, well, Project Overmatch is, as you said, our contribution to the joint and coalition fight moving forward. But the main focus of Project Overmatch is to deliver the capability faster and in, in smaller increments, getting feedback from the warfighter. And what we're doing is we're, we're developing tools and processes that lend themselves to that speed, that velocity of developing and delivering and adjusting and adapting capabilities moving forward. So with that, I'm leveraging the, these tools and processes to turn around and allow us to be agile and move faster on everything we do within the OneNav War enterprise from um, a software development, from getting automated and automatic ATOs using the RAISE process, which is rapid assess, incorporate software engineering, and basically tooling up a DevSecOps pipeline, basically, 
And if you write a piece of code, you know what your security requirements are. And if the piece of code makes it through the entire pipeline, it automatically gets an ATO. We take something that used to take 18 months and it takes less than a month from start to finish to a credit, a critical piece of warfighting capability. So we're taking those kinds of things and applying them to everything else that we're doing, allowing ourselves to deliver things faster. P Leo's out in the commercial sector today. And how do we get that delivered to every single ship and sub and airplane and shore site in the Navy as fast as we possibly can is where we're operating and leveraging all the precedences that we've set with Overmatch to be able to deliver this goodness to everybody. And how about being agile on the, the hardware integration side? Because I think a lot of this takes you in the direction of no longer having to do giant programs of record to install massive satellite communications equipment onboard vessels. It's much smaller, much lighter, lighter, much more easily replaced as technology evolves. Is that fair? Or, or are you figuring out processes to do the hardware side more quickly? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it used to be when you wanted to put a new network on board the ship, you had to provide open heart surgery, replace the entire network, build an entire new network, deliver the entire new network, and bring it to life from bare metal. And we're moving to being able to look at things from a more modular perspective and just remove and replace certain components and develop digital models and digital twins through the revolution of digital engineering to be able to automatically port over the new operating environments to these platforms. In the case of PLEO, we have pretty much an open architecture chassis that will allow itself to operate multiple different PLEO types of capabilities and products simultaneously. So right now it's, we're using Starlink because that's the one that is fully operational today. But as other ones come and, and become more capable across the globe, we'll be able to just add new cards to that system and not have to perform a completely different installation every single time we get a new PLEO capability in orbit. So we're looking at any and all ways from a hardware and a software perspective to be modular, to do smaller increments faster, and to get us out of having to tear ships completely apart in a very long and disruptive process to deliver IT capabilities to the fleet. Is part of the equation also the, the constellations that the Space Development Agency is contracting and, and building for? Is that part of the picture? And, and, and does it complicate life to have multiple providers that may need multiple pieces of hardware on, on board every vessel? Uh, as I said earlier, having as many options and alternatives and diversity of paths and capabilities is a benefit and a good thing. We can work on the complexity. We can provide engineering solutions to make the complexity be done with machines versus putting it all on the shoulders of our sailors moving forward. So we embrace the development delivery of any and all of these new capabilities that are emerging. And we're thinking about those things today. What, so when they come tomorrow, we'll be ready to deliver much more so than we used to do in the past, which is things would be developed and then we would react to those things. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about what, what sort of apertures this kind of bandwidth and low latency opens up for you. You know, as, as I mentioned toward the beginning of the discussion, a lot of what the Navy does afloat is just on the assumption that there's not going to be a lot of bandwidth available. So so once you start yeah. going from, and you'll correct me on the numbers, a, a total availability of a couple megabits to on the order of hundreds of megabits, 
what what does that allow you to do in terms of what the broader Navy IT community can develop? What can get done on a ship that previously could not? Yeah, there's two sides to the answer. The first side is that these these PLEO systems come with apertures that are not much bigger than a pizza box. And that pizza box is multiple hundreds of megabits of capability. And it replaces a two ton, eight foot antenna that takes an extraordinarily amount of money and time and energy to install on the ship. So you have this little, and you can put this thing almost anywhere and you can do it in over a weekend or less. The original ones, the original Starlink antennas were actually attached to the ship using magnets which is pretty um, transformational, but even a permanent installation of these things, once we do an EMI assessment to see what freak band they operate in and what is the best part place on the ship to put these things, you can put them almost anywhere. And that's the, and they're hard to even see and find and discern, and they're extremely cost-effective. So we have the flexibility of bringing these things on faster instead of in, in the older paradigm, it was, we got an antenna, we got to install antenna, we got to find a CNO availability when the ship is tied up for six months to a year, and then we'd have to go do a whole bunch of very costly and time-consuming work. We can just bring this thing on board and have it installed over a weekend. The other side of it is, is bringing hundreds more megabits of bandwidth to all of these platforms then allows this the capabilities. We in the Navy have lived in a DDL mindset in a DDL world for the past 30 years. Like Ron said, I've been around 34 years, you've been around 36 years, and we've always thought about, well, we can't build an application that uses too much bandwidth to the, we're opening the aperture, what could you do to help the sailors out? So we're letting all the community owners know, now we're working on building architectural analysis to let them know what they can do, how they can open the aperture, how ready relevant learning can be distributed to a ship on deployment in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, how we can do our logistics IT, how we can do medical, actually use this capability to allow the pro from Dover at Bethesda Hospital to help a general surgeon or a general doctor be able to cure and, and, and perform surgeries and other things that they could never have done without having somebody there to help them think about it. The, the thought and what we can do is, is almost infinite in the capabilities and we're communicating as aggressively as we can across the entire Navy about think in terms of what you could do with your terrestrial sites in the afloat domain and you don't have to change your applications or develop two different applications, one for you know the schoolhouse or ashore and one afloat. You can develop just one application and make it very robust in allowing the sailors to have much greater capability afloat. Plus, there's also things for morale and welfare and other things that this brings to the table as part of quality of service that we haven't been able to do in the past too. So there, there are some issues and concerns in the Navy with suicides and other things. The ability to bring services to help address some of those concerns also lend themselves to this new technology. And also back on the hardware integration side, Ron, let me come to you next on a, on a 5G question here. I, I assume a lot of what Rob just said about the, the ease of integrating some of this stuff um, on, onto a vessel also applies to 5G, right? And I'm, I'm guessing some of the, the hardware involved there is even smaller than a pizza box. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to the actual open RAN and the systems that are being developed today, um, you can pretty much fit everything in 142U rack, whereas a lot of the stuff that we had before 
like the stuff Rob used to install would take, I don't know, Rob, you'd have to answer that four to six um, full racks of servers. Um, yep. But yeah, it's much smaller, much, much smaller today. And to be fair, those big antennas that Rob's talking about, they're oversized and they required big trucks and mostly had to be moved at night. So they cost a lot of money. But uh, today you can order them and have them delivered pretty quick. <laughs> Yeah, but we do, you know, Pelio, as I said said earlier, is a very, very um, amazing and transformational option. But all the other comms paths that we have are still very critical. We're still going to be focusing, yeah. leveraging, and using all of them along with Pelio, along with 5G. The more options and alternatives we can provide the warfighter, the more the warfighter will figure out what to do and how to do it in a lot of cases. It's all part of our plan to be agile and to be aggressive about delivering capability. As Admiral Small typically says, is put it in the hands of the warfighter. They'll be able to tell us how to optimize and drive and, and take advantage of these technologies moving forward. Last thing here in our, our last 90 seconds or so, um, obviously the warfighter is going to help you with this. What do you need from industry? A, a lot of this, as we've been talking about, came out of commercial industry. What what do you need from vendors from the commercial sector in general to make all of this work well in a Navy context? Yeah, you know, we're always seeking world-class and we're also seeking options and alternatives and industry, what they're doing today, the speed they're moving, um, the innovation that we're seeing happening on the commercial side are all things that we're very, very, we're learning, we're watching and we're adapting and addressing and bringing it on board. But then there's there's technologies and developing technologies and concepts that we're unaware of. The more awareness we have of all the art of the possible and all the things that are happening out there are things that we are very, very keenly interested in. So if an industry partner has a new transformational way of doing something or a new technology or something in the area of cybersecurity, um, any and all of these technologies, we're very, very interested in learning about them as they're being developed and delivered to the commercial sector, vice waiting for them to be delivered and then reacting and responding to it. So in a lot of cases, we can provide our industry partners some of our unique requirements as they're developing these things. And um, so that communication and collaboration also yields significant benefit for us. And I'll also add that increasing this aperture, some people are concerned that it opens up vulnerabilities. I look at it as an opportunity for us to increase our ability to provide cybersecurity to our platforms at an exponentially better rate than we can today, just by the factor of being able to use AIML and share the information and to be able to understand at a larger scale what's happening to the network at all times. All right. Unfortunately, we are going to have to leave it there for time. I want to give a huge thanks to our guests today. We've been talking with Rob Wolborski, the expert on all matters of float communications. He's the chief engineer at Naval Information Warfare Systems Command. Also been talking with Ron Wolf, the technical warrant holder for Navy Mobility. Gentlemen, thanks again for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And you're listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbio. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu, and we're going to stick with Navy IT matters for the rest of the show. 
For many federal agencies, achieving a zero-trust approach to cybersecurity is still just an aspiration. For the Navy, though, it's already becoming a reality. Zero Trust still hasn't made its way onto classified networks or ships, but for the vast majority of users on the Navy's enterprise networks, officials say they've achieved at least the basic underpinnings of a Zero Trust architecture. One reason the Navy was able to move so quickly is the Zero Trust effort rode the coattails of Operation Flank Speed, the service's implementation of Microsoft 365. In this part of the show, we're joined by three guests to talk more about what the Navy's achieved so far. Commander Nick Goddard is Director of Operations for the Navy Cyber Defense Operations Command. Barry Tanner is the Chief Operations Officer for the Navy's Program Executive Office for Digital and Enterprise Services. And David Volker is the Lead Zero Trust Architect for the Department of the Navy CIO's Office. Barry Tanner speaks first in this excerpt from our conversation. Flankspeed is the Navy's implementation of Microsoft Office 365 on the surface, but it's also all of the security capabilities and underlying technology that defend all that information using tools in Microsoft's Azure cloud. So uh, this was the first time uh, that the Navy decided to essentially go all in with cloud capabilities. And um, when when we started that journey, we made a conscious decision to start with a blank sheet of paper and use the work that had been done at places like Dreamport um, from uh, from NSA and Cybercom's experimentation that had happened uh, in the 2018-2019 timeframe, and take the lessons that had come out of of, of those uh, those efforts and build them into the implementation of Office 365 for the Navy. So flank speed is uh, it comes from our original Operation Flank Speed. Uh, we were like everyone else in the pandemic era forced to go very quickly to a mass telework situation. And so uh, flank speed uh, denotes the, uh, we have to do this really quick situation that we were in uh, and the name stuck. So we've, we've, uh, we've, we continue to evolve that platform and use it as the basis for understanding and implementing zero trust in a practical manner. The implementation of that framework would not have been successful at all without a very close partnership with the operational community. Uh, teams from NCDOC and NetWorkCom were integrated uh, with the efforts from the beginning and drove a number of very critical lines of effort to make sure that what we developed was not just um, technically accurate, but also operationally relevant. The real power of the team that we have today is the close integration between us on the acquisition side of the house and the operational community to make sure that as we develop new capability, it's immediately able to go into the operational space and be effective. Not discounting that teamwork at all, I don't have a doubt for a minute about how important all that was, but how, how, how much of a forcing function was that pandemic-related work-from-home requirement itself, that push to get to a 365 environment as, as quickly as you did? Would you be where you are today with, without all of that forcing function? Uh, no. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a catalyst. Uh, we had been uh, working on the designs and, uh, and thinking about doing this as early as 2018, like I mentioned, we were talking about this is how we need to do it. The original estimates of it was going to take us four years, uh, maybe even five to get there, uh, given uh, integration challenges and a number of other factors uh, that, that were facing us. Uh, and in a typical uh, environment, it probably would have taken that long. But um, uh, the pressure of the pandemic, the, the focus that it gave everyone all the way up to and including the Secretary of the Navy was critical to ensure that everybody was driving in the same direction. It was a very high priority. We were able to remove some barriers that uh, are typically very hard in a government environment to getting things done. 
I, I personally have been involved in Navy IT for almost uh, 20 plus years, and I've never seen anything go that fast. So uh, to, to say that the pandemic really led uh, was a major factor in our success is absolutely true. I'd like to try and connect a little bit more um, why flank speed was so foundational for, for zero trust for you all. We don't need to get too deeply into the technical weeds here, but and maybe maybe Commander Goddard, this is where you can jump in. What exactly are the security capabilities that are built into that cloud environment that get you closer or got you closer and got you to zero trust? Uh, thank you, Jared. Uh, yeah, you know, as, as Barry was talking about, when we had the catalyst to, to drive us there, uh, it was an operational push uh, from a necessity for folks logging in from home, but how do we how do we defend that? And so traditional acquisition in a five-year cycle uh, takes a little, uh, you know, a lot longer to actually get capability. So, but when you have a forcing function to drive that, it sh shows us how to rethink the actual problem. And I think from a zero trust strategy that uh, Mr. Sherman had been pushing at the DOD level really allowed us a, a platform and a framework to drive to an outcome. And so from an operational standpoint, when we talk about you know, the seven pillars of zero trust, although those are important, uh, what we talk about is the actual an ecosystem of capabilities. So when we talk about migration from a typical legacy environment and we go into cloud, we actually have capability uh, nested within the cloud itself. So uh, in this case, we talk about the Defender suite of tools. We talk about Microsoft Defender for Endpoint, Microsoft Defender for Identity. It's not just those tools, the tools that we've been using uh, within NCDoc for several years. Uh, but when we look at the data itself and how flank speed was able to not just take the data the identity the user some of the devices that we're talking about uh, when you go work from home you have either government furnished equipment or you bring some other personal devices so the ecosystem was uh, very diverse and so the tools that we had at the very beginning uh, were not very capable at actually identifying uh, threats when it came to uh, those you know bring your own device types of things or even the legacy uh, government devices when you work from home and so when we talk about MS-365, it allowed us to not just look at the endpoints, but also allow tools that were you know, standard within industry for years and allowed us to leverage that platform in order for us to go faster, not just from a speed and agility standpoint, but from a fidelity of the data. And so that was really important for us. And what we found from the operational side is the, the visibility of the data and the type of data that we were getting, uh, not just from the endpoint, but from the servers, from the entire ecosystem, allowed us from a defensive standpoint to have better visibility than we've ever had before. And I think that's really important for folks to understand is, you know, was defense bad before? Not necessarily, but the visibility and insight into those networks and the ecosystem was not the same. And so when we saw the volume and the fidelity and the granularity of the data, that allowed us to make much, you know, much more risk informed decisions about defense. Not not just 10th Fleet, but really all the DoD cyber components have, have been saying for years, we have more data than we know what to do with. So the, the natural question is, how does adding more data help? But but it sounds like the answer is one, better quality data, and two, automating the processing of a lot of that data so that human beings don't need to actually look at the raw elements of it. Is, is Am I close? Absolutely. And so when we talk about, you know, those the 2.3 billion events, that, that's a lot more data than just those 2.3 billion events, right? So we see anywhere from like seven to eight terabytes of data flowing through our networks every 24 hours from a defensive standpoint. And at the operational level, they're in the petabytes, right? So our partnership with uh, Naval Network Warfare Command, which is our sister organization internally. So the secure and operate and the defend are, we are right next to each other. So when we talk about insight and data, the volume of that data, to your point, is, is, has been a big challenge for DOD writ large. 
But the way we're trying to solve it internally is uh, there's ecosystems of tools that can handle that volume of data. So when we recognize that some of the data isn't valuable, we have the ability to drop that very quickly or assimilate that somewhere else. But the storage curation, we're not trying to move data unless there's an actual valid incident. So when we talk about the telemetry coming in, uh, we're, we're tweaking that and, and taking you know industry best practices and apply them within the defensive environment. Because sometimes there isn't necessarily the right applicability when it comes to defensive networks and DOD and industry. And so our use case is slightly different uh, where we do care about the data, but the challenge for us is what data is valuable. And so the great partnership between Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and Oracle allow us to understand, look, if, did, it, did it give us more insight? And we get the operator feedback very quickly. That's Commander Nick Goddard, the Director of Operations for the Navy Cyber Defense Operations Command. Also talking with Barry Tanner, the Chief Operations Officer for the Navy's Program Executive Office for Digital and Enterprise Services, and David Volker, the Lead Zero Trust Architect for the Department of the Navy CIO's Office. We'll come back and talk more about the Navy's Zero Trust efforts in just a minute. This is on DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbin. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we continue our conversation on the Navy's zero trust efforts with Commander Nick Goddard, the Director of Operations for Navy Cyber Defense Operations Command, Barry Tanner, the Acting Executive Director and Command Operations Officer in the Navy Program Executive Office for Digital and Enterprise Services, and David Volker, the Department of the Navy CIO's lead for zero trust. And Mr. Volker, let, let's let's start with you again as we as we pick up this segment. I, w- I want to go back to some of what um, Mr. Tanner was saying in the last segment about workforce and and culture. The the cyber defense operations community is is very big. It's used to doing things a certain way. There's a lot new in zero trust. Get us started by talking a bit uh, about how much needs to be done. What is being done in terms of reskilling, upskilling, getting that culture change going and getting everybody into a zero trust mindset? Uh, yes. So in the uh, zero trust portfolio management office at the DOD level, we've set up uh, sub working groups uh, for training and education uh, that's led by the Defense Acquisition University. As part of that effort, we have a practitioner's course. We have a zero trust awareness course. The awareness course is a CBT that can be completed about an hour to uh, allow folks that may have not heard about Zero Trust before or may have heard about it you know, in passing in a meeting can take that in about an hour, uh, get up to speed on all the regulatory requirements, uh, the executive orders that have been placed to implement Zero Trust within DOD. But within the educational working group, uh, we're identifying you know, the types of training that we need, not just for our professional level um, DOD civilians and, and war fighters that are on the front line today, uh, but also the C school and A school training that's going to be required and reaching out to those educators and those instructors and have them participate uh, within this working group to identify the types of training that we do need. Uh, within the uh, Department of Army, uh, they do have a pretty robust uh, educational course that is hands-on that's shared within that environment. And what I would like to do is have those instructors from our C schools and A schools come in and see that type of training and adopt that within the Department of Navy for the benefit for those warfighters that are coming in new as an enlisted member uh, to get that training. So when they hit that first 72 hours of on the job, 
they can understand what's required and be able to adapt to the new tools uh, that are being provided uh, within the Department of Navy for them to use to defend uh, our technical baselines. And at, at that, you know, sort of joint DAU level of, of training, I guess that gets to the question of, is there is there a Navy and an Army and an Air Force way of doing zero trust? And are there different tools that people need to know about? What's what's broadly applicable that works across uh, across the in, entire department in terms of training? So what we found that works best uh, within the DAU for the practitioner's course is to tailor it to that particular uh, service. Mm. So if we have a Marine Corps service and they're using a particular set of tools, uh, the workup for that class, even though the curriculum is the same, we want to tailor it to that particular audience. The same is true for Navy, Air Force, Space Force, and uh, also for Army. Uh, noting that Army has uh, implemented a handful of zero trust uh, capabilities in their technical environment and shown a lot of success with their blue teaming uh, reviews of that particular technical baseline, uh, purple teaming, and then uh, on the red team events, uh, they're able to show uh, the benefits and how well they can defend a technical baseline with just a handful to show the uh, benefits of not only the training, but also the implementation at uh, other technical baselines outside of CLAP. Yeah, and I want to jump in on that. So one of the challenges we run into on the Navy side from an enlisted workforce and an officer workforce is we have traditional A&C schools uh, and then you know initial officer accession within the community about foundational knowledge. And when we talk about cyber defense, we talk about the ecosystem with, you know, within zero trust, what does that look like? Uh, Industry is already employing these best practices. These tools roll out sometimes every other week. And so what is what does that look like? So our system cannot move fast enough. And I think the you know, we talk about foundational training. So how do we one reimagine what foundational training is? But with zero trust and some of the cloud services that we've been able to onboard today, it allows me to take somebody, a junior analyst or a junior operator that just showed up to the command. And within 30 to 60 days, get them, you know, really functional from an upskilling standpoint. One, you understand foundational network topology, but you're able to use the tools much more effectively. And so some of the analogies I use, you know, for from a training standpoint, um, you can be functional with a tool, but can you really maximize your opportunity with that tool? Right. So we talk about you know, I use the race car analogy. Uh, we want to build race car drivers. We want folks to take those tools, but from the foundation of zero trust and actually maximize all the things that are available. So when you give them a full capable cap, you know, capability standpoint from an internal perspective, they're able to move very quickly. And so the training that's, uh, whether it's online, in-person, right? There's a plethora of opportunities for us to do that. And industry is already doing this. And so we're adopting those best practices using zero trust as the framework and allowing those tools to drive us to new outcomes that we didn't previously think was possible based on how fast that training can be delivered to us, uh, whether it's online, in-person, or other. But again, we don't have to send somebody back to Pensacola where our A&C schools sit within our community. They can do that right there live on the command. And one, it reduces the cost to the Navy, not just from a manpower perspective, but also from a fiscal standpoint. And so it allows us to actually be much more effective based on the tools that are being provided very quickly within the Zero Trust framework. 
That's Commander Nick Goddard, the Director of Operations for the Navy Cyber Defense Operations Command. We've also been speaking with Barry Tanner, the Chief Operations Officer for the Navy's Program Executive Office for Digital and Enterprise Services, and David Volker, the Lead Zero Trust Architect for the Department of the Navy CIO's Office. That conversation was just a small excerpt from a longer discussion we had at Federal News Network's recent Cyber Leaders Exchange. To watch the full interview, go to federalnewsnetwork.com and search Cyber Leaders. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Servio. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 